Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 114, The Worm in the Apple. Last week, we took a bit of a detour from the story to talk about pointy shoes and court pieces and so on. This week, let's cover the 60s. An ambitious aim given our current speed, but I'm determined to move on, so let's give it a go. So then, as we said a couple of weeks ago, Edward had divvied up his world amongst his sons, and of course including the brightest, sparkliest jewel in his family crown, the Black Prince. The Black Prince's rule in Aquitaine started absolutely fine. Those big families, the Albrey, the Armagnac and the Counts of Foix, saw no reason not to play along and see how things went under the new boss. It was a bit like the honeymoon period for a new football manager, Steve McLaren taking over at Derby for example. Everyone's prepared to give him a chance, see how he does. In Aquitaine, there is no tradition of taxation on the English model, but so compliant were they that they allowed him to levy a fouage, a half tax. The Black Prince was having a ball and no mistake, and his court in Bordeaux glittered. But as the Plantagenet River flowed along its course, there was a boulder under the water, and that boulder's name was Spain. Spain would prove, over the next 30 years or so, to be the graveyard of English foreign policy. But the 60s all started so brightly. In 1364, John, King of France, died in captivity in London. This is not the bright start I'm referring to, by the way, because this was a bad thing. Capital B, capital T. No, the death of John was a bad thing because John was a thoroughly decent bloke, bound by his word of honour, and a loser to boot. Charles V, formerly known as the Dauphin, and a complex character, had his failings, but as an adversary, he would be considerably more impressive than John or Philip. It also meant, of course, 
that Edward no longer had the French king in his custody. No, the bright thing was the final resolution of the struggle between Charles of Blois and the English-backed Montford family for the dukedom of Brittany. Once released from the Tower of London, Charles of Blois had returned to the struggle which both parties claimed to be separate from the general war and therefore not bound by the Peace of Bretigny. In September 1364, Montford was besieging the castle of Auray, supported by a prile of English commanders, John Chandos, Hugh Calverley, Robert Knowles. Desperate to stop the castle falling, Blois and Gesquelin advanced to drive them off, and in the ensuing battle, Montford was victorious, Blois was killed, and Gesquelin was captured to be ransomed by Charles V for 100,000 francs. At last, this ruinous civil war seemed to be over, as Charles bowed to the inevitable and accepted Montford as the rightful duke. Sadly, this is not the end to the sorry story of the war in Brittany, but for the moment, the English-backed candidate had won. Another triumph for English arms and influence. Yay! While England and France are formally at peace, we get into a kind of war by proxy thing, you know, the type of thing. Britain invades Afghanistan because it's right next to India and they don't like the Russians messing around next to the jewel in their crown. The war by proxy in this case is in Spain. Let's have a wee refresher on the state of the Spanish nation, which is that there is no Spanish nation. We have the small Pyrenean kingdom of Navarre, ruled, as you all know, by Charles the Bad, Charles of Navarre, a major French nobleman and a major troublemaker. Then there is Aragon, a kingdom on the eastern seaboard of Spain. On the western Atlantic seaboard is the independent kingdom of Portugal. In the south, the remnants of the Moorish kingdom of Seville, but the ten-ton gorilla is the combined kingdom of Leon, Galicia and Castile. So, we then get a civil war going on between the family of Trastamara and the current king of Castile, Pedro the Cruel. Pedro, you may remember, had been engaged to the unlucky Joan, daughter of Edward III, when his father had been alive. The French and the Aragonese now saw a great opportunity to get rid of an English ally in Castile. They also saw a great way of getting rid of some of those free companies wandering all over France, by inviting them to attack Castile along with the French forces and the forces of Henry of Trastamara. And in 1366, this conglomeration of forces duly forced Pedro to flee for his life. Now when Pedro appeared in Bordeaux at the court of the Black Prince, the Black Prince should have closed his eyes and ears, barred his doors and refused to have anything to do with the whole affair. But in fact he did the very opposite, and for what must have seemed very good reason at the time. From his point of view, he couldn't afford to have a French client on the southern border of Aquitaine. And in addition, the Black Prince was a big spender, and Aquitaine just didn't raise enough money to keep him in the manner he'd like to become accustomed to. So surely, here was the perfect opportunity to make a bit of cash, just like the good old days. A nice chevalset, loads of ransoms, a payment from Pedro for his support to boot. Pedro was offering him the earth, so, can't lose. Silly not to. When do we leave? The resulting campaign of Nahera in 1367 was a stunning military success, 
maybe even greater than Poitiers, which confirms the military genius of the Black Prince. It was also a complete disaster, which would be the catalyst for the complete reversal of everything that Edward and his son had achieved in France. But by February 1367, the Black Prince's army of eight to 10,000 men was on the march, along with the Prince's younger brother, John of Grant, and along with Hugh Calverley and John Chandos. Into the passes of the Pyrenees they went, where, true to form, Charles of Navarre double-crossed him in favour of Henry of Trastamara, and then double-crossed Henry by reverting back to the prince. That guy is a class act. Interestingly, Trastamara received some advice from Charles V through his captain, Gescalin. Whatever you do, he said, do not offer the English battle. They're good at it. And indeed, in his words, they are, quote, the flower of chivalry of the world. No, take the approach of the Fabians. Avoid battle. Harass the enemy. Attack their supply lines. Make them suffer for every mile and deny them supplies. And so for a while, this is exactly what Trastamara and Gescalant did. And they had great success. But Trastamara had the same problems that John had faced at Poitiers. His political situation in Castile was too weak to allow an enemy to ride roughshod over his country. So he held a mighty strong position with his army outside the town of Nahera, and across the plain he could see the prince's army coming to meet him. And so despite abandoning Charles V's advice, it was with some confidence that Trastamara and Gescalin got some kipping on the night of the 2nd of April. While they were kipping, the Black Prince and his army got up bright and early before the dawn and executed a wide flanking manoeuvre. As dawn broke, the flag of St George appeared on the Castilian left flank, commanded by John of Gaunt and John Chandos. In panic, Gescalin turned his divisions to face the threat. And as panic threatened to turn his army into a rabble, he ordered an attack in desperation. But the prince's daring had cooked his goose. The Castilian centre and right were effectively taken out of the battle by the flanking movement. And as they tried to advance to help, they were forced off by a hail of arrows anyway from the English. Then the Castilian heavy cavalry refused to demean themselves by fighting on foot and were decimated by English archers. When the prince attacked in the centre, it was all over. Gescalin was captured again, though Trastamara escaped, and Pedro was once again king of Castile. All fine and indeed dandy. From there on it turned to Pooh literally, as the prince's army suffered from dysentery as well as malaria. Essentially, the campaign had cost the prince a fortune, maybe £400,000, and his Aquitanian chums, the Abray and the Armagnac, expected to see a return. Pedro, meanwhile, despite all the promises he's made, simply couldn't pay. He did what he could, by marrying his daughters to John of Gaunt and another of Edward's sons, Edmund. But all that was to achieve for the English was years more expensive complications and involvement in a war in Castile. In the end, his army ravaged by disease, the Black Prince had to withdraw and return to Bordeaux. In September that same year, surrounded by creditors demanding all those riches he'd offered, the Black Prince ordered a tax raised in Aquitaine, in the form of a half-tax, a new levying of the fouage. Now the French had put up with it once, 
but they were not about to put up with it a second time. The forage was very much an occasional tax, and the Black Prince was now essentially proposing to make it annual. Now, this might work in centralised England, but it just wasn't going to wash in France. Also, it has to be said that the Black Prince's attitude over the last seven years had alienated the great lords of Aquitaine. They'd hoped to find a greater degree of freedom than they'd had from the French king. Instead, they found less freedom, and they found more taxes. In addition, the Black Prince consistently failed to find the diplomatic touch his father had possessed. He was an arrogant man who'd come to believe his own publicity over the last 20 years and failed to fully understand the way politics worked in this part of the world, which was even more complicated than the way it worked in England. Essentially, he ruled at the sufferance of the Albrey and the Armagnac, who effectively controlled the complex network of lords and affinities. But instead of keeping those men at his side, he treated them with distant superiority. Sure, his court at Bordeaux was a glittering, grand affair, but then he couldn't afford to keep it going. His Castilian adventure and resulting tax had convinced the Albrey and the Armagnac that this experiment with the English had run its course. But maybe worst of all for the English was the fact that the Black Prince had also contracted an illness in Castile. It was very probably dysentery. And from 1367 to the end of his life, the Black Prince would be constantly incapacitated by illness and by pain. He travelled little in Aquitaine, and very often he was listless and unwilling to act. The great dynamic leader suddenly changed character. And when the challenges came from the next decade, often the English were left leaderless. In 1368, then, the Count of Armagnac broke ranks. As you'll probably remember, Armagnac had anyway been rather forced into the English camp. His family's natural affinity had always been with the French king. He therefore wrote a letter to Charles V in May 1368 complaining about the Black Prince's tax and asking him as the overlord to intervene. Worse still, the Albrey family, until now staunch supporters that had allowed the English to hang on to the southwest, threw their weight behind the Armagnac letter. Now they knew exactly what they were doing. This letter struck at the very heart of the Treaty of Bretigny and the English war aims, which were to reverse the concept of French feudal lordship on the Aquitanian lands, as conceded in 1259 by Henry III. Now legally what Charles should have done was to write back and politely decline, on the grounds that he had no legal rights in the area anymore. But Charles, cautious man though he was, realised that this was way too good a chance to be missed. And he summoned the Black Prince to come to Paris to answer the charges in 1369, as though he was still his feudal overlord. Now just as Philip had effectively declared war on England by his actions in the 1330s, so Charles declared war by any other words by accepting Armagnac's legal claim. Back at home, on the face of things, the 1360s was a decade of peace, prosperity and political harmony. It's the period when a man called William Wickham rose to political preeminence, a free but poor man, taking one of the few routes available for social mobility, the King's service. He'd been lucky enough when young to attract the sponsorship of great men, which got him a position at Windsor Castle. 
By 1361, he was a royal councillor, drawing money from two benefices and 11 prebends. Now, I'm not sure how much I need to explain those terms, benefices and prebends, but essentially there were patches of church land or parishes somewhere whose income from tithes and rents went to William Wickham rather than to the local priest. Anyway, in 1366, Wickham became the Bishop of Winchester, gaining rent from all those stews in Southwark. Wickham will have a long, if slightly chequered, career and will be around for a while. He's the guy who, in 1382, will found Winchester College, which claims to have the longest, unbroken history of any school in England, but just don't get me involved in all those claims and counterclaims. And Wickham also founded New College Oxford. By 1367, Wickham was the Chancellor, exercising a massive amount of authority and independence. It's not that Wickham is suspected of stealing royal powers, but there's more than a suggestion that through the 1360s, Edward kind of feels that his job is done. He's done loads of cool stuff. Beaten up the King of France, established the most important chivalric order in Europe, established a stable political consensus, amassed a personal treasure from ransoms of well over £100,000. And now he'd just like to check out a bit, if that was OK with everyone else, and let Wickham run the show. So we know, for example, that the number of tournaments dropped to something like two a year, rather than one every month. And Edward is definitely a spectator, not a participant now. His expenditure on falconry shoots up, keeping over 60 birds at his muse at Charing in London, suggesting he's spending more and more time hunting instead. There's also a suggestion, though, that his health isn't brilliant. But more, that Philippa's health is really bad and seriously failing. One of the reasons we know this are that the household accounts show an increase in spending on medicines and physicians. But another is the appearance of one Alice Perez. Despite Edward's reputation for presiding over a lascivious court full of immoral goings-on, fun, sex and laughter, fuelled by the confessions of people like Lancaster and propaganda like the Vow of the Heron, as far as we can see, Edward has notably been a one-woman man, with eyes only for Philippa. Alice Perez changes all that, and she becomes one of the most famous royal mistresses alongside Henry II's Rosamund Clifford, and Edward the Fourth, James Shaw. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Alice was probably the daughter of a not very successful knight in Hertfordshire, Richard Perez who got involved in a land dispute with St Albans Abbey and is soundly stuffed. He was in prison in 1350 and outlawed in 1359. This is probably significant. Clearly Alice would feel a great deal of financial insecurity, which seems to have driven some of her future behaviour. And secondly, it makes an enemy of one of our principal chroniclers of the age, one Thomas of Walsingham, who's at the Abbey of St Albans. 
Women who display characteristics considered virtues in men, by and large, don't do well at the hands of church chroniclers. But Thomas had these other reasons to dislike the Perez family due to this land dispute, and he will let it rip in writing. So Thomas's claim was that Alice was no looker, but she bewitched the king, using sorcery to gain control over him. Anyway, somehow before or while he was banged up, Richard Perez managed to get his daughter Alice placed in the Queen's household. And Alice became a lady-in-waiting for Philippa. In 1363, at the grand old age of 15, she seems to have caught the King's eye. Over the following years, she was to have three illegitimate children with the King. At this stage, with the Queen still alive, all of this is very much in the background, or at least secret within the confines of the royal household. You have to wonder if Philippa's illness was part of the story. Elsewhere, while there's no doubt that on the surface of the pond it's true that Edward presides over a consensus in the political elite, there are dark stirrings in the depths. There is a worm in the apple of the body politic. In the countryside, there are in fact a considerable number of prosecutions going on through the statute of labourers, as the consequences of the Black Death works its influence. In the East Riding of Yorkshire alone, for example, in one year there were 93 cases of excess wages, 42 cases of refusal to work at legal wages, and 57 unlicensed departures by peasants from their manor. These are all examples of what we spoke about a few episodes ago. Labour is scarce from the catastrophic population decline, and many peasants and labourers are determined to get their piece of the action from the landholders. Who knows how many cases never reached the courts, as unfree villains negotiated better wages or moved to better conditions with a neighbouring lord. Meanwhile, a petition in 1368 in Parliament spoke of the problems in local communities caused by high prices. So underneath the surface, there's a deal of social unrest, change and conflict going on. And around him, people close to Edward kept dying, notably his son Lionel, who died in 1368. And Edward began to become a slightly more distant figure, more divorced from day-to-day -day relationships that had sustained him and the court. And then finally, diplomatically, Edward suffers a serious reverse at the hands of Charles V. In the Low Countries, once a major centre of English influence and still a massively important trading partner, the Count, Louis de Marle, had steered a clever path, avoiding conflict with either France or England. In the 1360s, his 12-year-old daughter Margaret had become the greatest heiress in Europe, heiress not only to her father's lands, but also to Burgundy, Artois, Brabant and Limburg. Edward was desperate for his son Edmund, now Earl of Cambridge, to marry Margaret, and if he'd pulled it off, you can immediately see what a massive change it would have been, creating an enormous power in northwestern Europe sympathetic to England. But once again, French control of the papacy delivered. As usual, a papal dispensation was needed for Edmund and Margaret to marry, since they were related by blood. And the Pope refused Edward, but at the same time was to give the same dispensation to Charles's brother, 
Duke Philip of Burgundy. Okay, so when news reached Edward in 1368 that Charles V had accepted the invitation from Armagnac and had decided to intervene, Edward girded the old loins and set the engine in motion. Parliament was consulted and preparations to raise an army began and then in June 1369 Edward declared that he had resumed the title of the King of France and it was time for the old glories to resume. But the old glory days were sadly to prove elusive. 1369, the first year of the war, did not go well. Charles, Albrey and Armagnac had prepared. And in April 1369, Charles invaded and took over the English-held county of Pontieu in the northwest. He had a fleet and men ready in Normandy, threatening an invasion of England. Because Charles and his main lieutenant, Bertrand du Guesclin, were determined that this time round things would be different. Here's how it was going to go this time. Number one. All the previous wars had been fought by France on the defensive on their own lands. This time, they'd take the fight to England. Two. If the English did attack them, there would be no pitched battles, no siree. The English are good at pitched battles, so we're not going to play their game. Run away. Sit in a castle or town, watch the peasants burn if needs be. Number three. This time, the English will have to defend the lands they've won in Aquitaine. Ha! They're going to hate that, and we will make them suffer. It was in Aquitaine that the pain was immediately felt. We talked before about how things worked. Central authority was weak, and the Black Prince had been able to do very little about that. In the background, Albrey and Armagnac had their clients ready, and the Black Prince could do little to tie those men to his cause. So almost immediately, swathes of the eastern provinces and the Perigord declared for the French crown and were lost. It's not that the English did nothing. Edward's sons were sent to France. Edmund, the young and inexperienced Earl of Cambridge, went with some men to Gascony, along with the Earl of Pembroke. And the older John of Gaunt went over to Calais to hold the fort, as it were, while Edward intended to follow as soon as he could. Bad news continued to come in. Edward's ally, Pedro the Crawl, had been assassinated in Castile. Henry Trastamara had become king. And so, an enemy of England and a friend of France held Aquitaine's southern borders. Then there was a fresh outbreak of the bubonic plague in England. And Philippa fell seriously ill, and rather than go on campaign, Edward went to Windsor to be with her when she died. There's a suggestion that maybe she died of bubonic plague but she had in all probability been ill for some time anyway. And in August 1369, she finally died and was buried at Westminster. You can't avoid the sense of the wheels coming off Edward pretty comprehensively. Many of his family were dead or incapacitated. His wife and companion, who had sustained him in the dark years of Mortimer's dominance, who had shared all the glories, was gone. Many of Edward's greatest captains and military and political companions were dead. There's a viciously witty comment, is there not, by Gore Vidal, that Truman Capote's death was a good career move. The same could very much be said about Edward, though maybe in an odd sort of way his story would have been less interesting. If Edward had died in 1367 or 8, he would have had an absolutely unblemished reputation 
as the great arbiter of Europe. Old men in pubs would have shaken their heads about what a broken reed his son, King Edward IV, had turned out to be after his early promise as the Black Prince. How Edward III would never have allowed his French possessions to be taken from him. It was better in the old days. Can anybody get me another pint? I've left my wallet at home. That sort of thing. But as it is, Edward's story is tinged with tragedy and failure. Nonetheless, the war in 1369 wasn't a complete disaster. The Earl of Warwick joined John of Gaunt in Calais, and then they burned and pillaged their way across northern France. And as a result, Charles looked bad and had to call off the invasion of England. In Aquitaine, the Black Prince was bedridden, and relied on his captains John Chandos and Hugh Calverley to lead the war effort. Pembroke and Cambridge wandered around ineffectually, but all of this led to a successful campaign in Poitou. In December, Chandos proved that the English hadn't completely lost their touch. He enticed the French force to attack a small English force over the bridge at Luzac. As the French tried to cross, he appeared with another force at their back and the French were crushed between them. But during the fight, Chandos, who fought without a visor, was run through the head with a sword and died a few hours later. And with him died one of the only soldiers with the skill and vision needed to defeat the French. Another one, the vastly experienced and successful Earl of Warwick, died in Calais at the end of 1369 of the plague. It didn't get any better in 1370. The strategy was a return to the good old days, a two-pronged attack on the French. In the north, Robert Knowles would attack with the help of Charles of Navarre in Normandy, while Gaunt would be sent to Gascony with only a few men. Which was a shame, because the French Royal Council and Gascony had decided that they would focus their efforts precisely there in Gascony and have the English out of there within two years. And so we come to one of the most controversial events in the life of the Black Prince, the sack of Limoges. The region of Poitou had in fact proved pretty loyal to the English crown, much more so than the eastern provinces. But in 1370, French plans to invade were well known, and the Black Prince lay helpless in his bed, surrounded by attendants who had to make most of the decisions for him. And so towns in Poitou began to desert, including the Bishop of Limoges, who took the city with him. In one final effort to shore up the situation, the Black Prince stirred himself and headed out on campaign. In the face of the famous Black Prince, the French retreated and left Limoges to its fate, and in September 1370 it was under siege. The citizen refused to surrender, and they were overwhelmed. The story goes that, enraged, the Black Prince refused to show mercy and slaughtered the inhabitants of Limoges and Foissart, increasingly conscious of the impact of war, wrote a famous passage. The prince entered the city on foot with his companies. All of them were equipped for evil, and ready to spread out across the city, killing men, women and children as they had been ordered to do. It was heartrending to see the inhabitants throwing themselves on the ground before the prince as he passed, crying out, Mercy, noble lord, mercy! No one listened to their appeals, as the invaders ran through with their swords everyone they found in their way. These people had nothing to do with the city's treason, but paid a dearer price than the great figures who had really been responsible. According to Foissart, 3,000 died. 
History has recorded that the Black Prince ignored humanity and the rules of war in his desperation and despair at the English newfound impotence. By and large, this appears to be hogwash. OK, things hadn't started well for the English, but in 1370, it was far too early for them to think they weren't going to manage a comeback. OK, the Black Prince was ill, but in fact, probably at most 300 died. And all of this was very much the normal course of war, unfortunately, and in line with the normal rules. So just the same as Caen in 1346, for example, Limoges had refused to surrender and was therefore subject to sack. The bosses, like the treacherous Bishop of Limoges, were spared as per the rules of war and ransom. The really interesting thing about the passage of Foissars is his changing attitude to war and chivalry. His sympathies lie more and more with the innocent victims. His love of the glory and chivalry is more and more tempered by the horror of it all. While all this was going on, Knowles' great attack down the Seine ended in destruction and defeat. True enough, his force burned and pillaged their way all the way to the walls of Paris. But then, as they retreated, Gesquelin organised a brilliant campaign of harassment. In the English camp, the leadership fell apart. Knowles, despite his talents as a tactician and soldier, was simply too low-born for many of his captains within his army to obey. As they retreated, Gesquelin snapped at their heels and Knowles' army split into three parts. Gesquelin mauled one of them at Pont Vallon, catching the English by surprise, and by the end of the campaign, two of the units were destroyed and captured, with only Knowles and his unit escaping. The impact of this campaign was momentous. The aura of English invincibility was shattered. Charles of Navarre, once again reading the runes, abandoned the idea of an English alliance, and by March 1371 he had given in and paid homage to Charles V. In October 1370, the Black Prince arrived at Cognac and disbanded his troops. The effort of the campaign had finished him, and his doctors told him he must return to England. It was announced that John of Gaunt would take over government of the Principality of Aquitaine. Gaunt was clearly not happy with the idea. He extracted a promise that he would be released if arrears in pay for his soldiers were more than one month, which you'd think was pretty much a racing certainty. The long sea journey back to England almost finished the Black Prince. When he arrived at Plymouth, he spent three months recovering. In April 1371, he entered London via Southwark to be met by the mayor and escorted to the Savoy Palace, and after the ceremonies, he returned to his estates at Berkhamsted, northwest of London. The Black Prince would appear very occasionally at meetings of the King's Council, but very rarely. Basically, he was finished at the age of 42, a broken reed. And so on that happy note, I think we'll leave it there for now. Next week, there will be no podcast because it's my off weekend, but thanks to everyone for listening. Good luck, everyone, and have a great tour.